Hello there, and welcome back to this week's show. My name is Cami, and I'm currently a rising junior at the University of Connecticut, majoring in physiology and neurobiology, with a minor in human development and family sciences, specializing in early childhood development. This week's episode will be delving into the biological and political abyss of abortion and the guiding question of what gives a being the right to life. Before getting into such a controversial topic, let's go back to the basics. A routine that all my fellow females are too familiar with. Once a month, the ovaries of the female reproductive system release an egg, and the uterine lining builds up. If this egg is fertilized by a sperm cell within the appropriate time frame, we form a zygote, which grows into an embryo, which grows into a fetus. When the fetus is maturing within the mother's womb, health assessments are regularly conducted to ensure a healthy pregnancy. One of these health assessments, also recently deemed an extremely controversial political topic, is prenatal screening and diagnostic testing. A lot of us are probably not too familiar with prenatal testing, especially my age group solely because not many of us are out and about having kids, and because it has to do with a lot of medical jargon that no one really wants to listen to. Basically, prenatal testing is any test recommended by a physician during pregnancy, anything like blood pressure, urine, and blood tests, as well as the typical ultrasound are all very common and non-invasive. Then you have more invasive procedures like amniocentesis that begin to cause some waves because there's a risk of miscarriage, um, but only 1%. These tests also begin to stir controversy when determining fetal health conditions and abnormalities, as some may choose to terminate the pregnancy upon receiving certain results, and we know how that goes getting into abortion. But let's not touch too much on that yet. You might start to hear about both screening and diagnostic tests, and they're not quite the same thing. Screening tests provide a general likelihood of a fetus developing a condition, while diagnostic tests confirm or deny that the condition is present. That's why we'll hear about more invasive practices being utilized because they're far more accurate. Anyways, within the first trimester, carrier screening tests determine whether the mother and father are carriers of a condition. In the event that they both are carriers, further testing is conducted to determine the fetus's status. Cell-free fetal DNA testing, also done in this trimester, examines the baby's DNA through the mother's blood to check for genetic conditions, one of the most commonly known being Down syndrome. Within the second trimester, there is also maternal blood screening and amniocentesis, which is when they remove some amount of amniotic fluid from the amniotic sac. As mentioned before, a lot of mothers are opting out of the more invasive routes. However, genetic testing is becoming a safer and just as accurate alternative. So now we get into what these tests scan for. These tests scan for genetic disorders, which are, as they sound, a result of a change in the fetus's genes or chromosomes. The most common ones are trisomy, which is an extra chromosome, and monosomy, which is a missing chromosome. One of the most prevalent in the news and media is trisomy 21, or T21, more commonly known as Down syndrome. Down syndrome causes intellectual and development delays, a distinct facial appearance, and can lead to diseases of the heart and thyroid. Other sorts of inherited disorders caused by gene mutations uh, are those such as Tay-Sachs disease, sickle cell anemia, and cystic fibrosis um, that can also be found with these technologies. These diagnoses are where the conversation gets quite polarized and political. Many of the women who find out they are carrying a fetus with a condition may choose to terminate the pregnancy while some may choose to carry to term. We have pro-life, the conservative right-wing stance that says life begins upon conception, aka the moment the sperm fertilizes the egg, basically saying that abortion is a senseless killing of an innocent life. 
Then we have the liberal left-wing stance of pro-choice that argues that a woman has the right to choose to carry a pregnancy to full term or to end the pregnancy. In terms of prenatal testing, lobbyists who oppose abortion are now targeting these tests as an enhanced search and destroy diagnostic tool, saying they only serve to increase the number of elective abortions and feeding into the left-wing agenda. Now we get to the burning question of, do these increased amounts of screenings and tests really lead to an increase in abortions? I found an interesting study conducted in Slovenia that looked at the effects of prenatal screening on the prevalence of Down syndrome, or T21 as referred to in the paper. It found that 46% of the prenatally diagnosed fetuses with T21 were found solely due to advanced maternal age. Going hand in hand with that, the mean age of childbearing has increased from 25.4 years in 1981 to 30.3 years in 2012. Since there is a drastically increased risk of abnormalities the later in life a woman has a child, physicians have no choice but to perform these prenatal screenings. Not doing so can result in a dangerous pregnancy for both the mother and the fetus. The study also says that rates of T21 in live newborns from areas with termination restrictions are three times higher than those from areas with little to no restrictions. Then, in Slovenia specifically, a majority of women whose fetus is diagnosed with T21 will terminate the pregnancy, leading to a low prevalence of infants born with T21. Overall, the takeaway is that accessibility to prenatal screenings leads to more terminated pregnancies and fewer infants born with Down syndrome. However, the increased prevalence of fetuses diagnosed with Down syndrome is not solely due to prenatal screenings, but also due to more women getting pregnant and starting their families at an older age, thus putting their fetuses at increased risk for Down syndrome. Choosing to abort a fetus based on a specific diagnosis, referred to as selective abortions, like these in the U.S., are mostly due to the implications of having a fetus with a life-altering condition or disorder. The social and psychological implications of a diagnosis are almost as difficult to grasp and deal with as the physical ones, not only for the patient themselves, but for the family as well. Fear, confusion, and guilt felt by the parents, lack of cures or treatment, frequent costly medical visits are all burdens felt by the family. Considering these effects often leads to the termination of the pregnancy. The woman is ultimately making a decision that not only regards the compromised quality of life for the child, but for herself and her entire family as well. However, there is abuse to these selective abortions like these taking place in India today. Female feticide, as it is referred to, is the termination of a pregnancy solely based on the sex of a fetus. Traditionally, in India, the family of a daughter pays the family of a son something called a dowry, which is a large sum of money, to wed their daughter. This financial burden is so threatening to families that they feel like they have no choice but to get an abortion. Uh, Indian laws are in place banning abortions for gender-selective purposes, but many families still continue to opt for them. Since these sex determination tests were made so accessible in the 1970s, India is estimated to have 63 million fewer women in their population, drastically skewing their ratio of male to female. This issue is deeply rooted within Indian customs and traditions of inequality and will not be solved until women are cherished rather than deemed a liability in their society. 
So now that all the science is out of the way, we can talk about what's happening in the United States right now in terms of abortion. My recent social media feed has been nonstop buzzing about the new court case chosen to be heard by the Supreme Court that has the potential to overturn Roe v. Wade completely. For now, things stand in favor of pro-choice advocates because of the landmark Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. The Supreme Court decided that the Constitution's right to privacy protects women when choosing whether to keep or terminate a pregnancy. With that said, states do have the leeway to make their own regulations as long as they are related to maternal health within the second trimester or when the fetus is considered viable within the third trimester. But, as I just mentioned, the Supreme Court has announced it will hear a case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, having to do with the Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. This strikes a nerve with pro-choice advocates because a lot of women don't even know they're pregnant this early, and fetal diagnosis we talked about before can't be detected this early either. So not only does this severely threaten the accessibility to safe legal abortions, but this has the potential to completely dismantle the Roe v. Wade precedent altogether. The Supreme Court sits at a 6-3 to conservative majority right now after Trump's presidency, so there really is a good chance that the Mississippi ban will be upheld. If the ban is upheld, this gives the states the freedom to decide on the right to abortion. We will likely see the more conservative states taking advantage of this and passing restrictions upon restrictions, while the more liberal states will comparatively have minimal restrictions as most are currently. This case, I'm sure, has many young women like myself saying to themselves, what now? Theoretically, if the Supreme Court favors the abortion ban, the economic, health, and safety effects could be devastating. More families pushed to poverty, women being at increased risk of physical and mental health issues, and the children being at risk of having a compromised quality of life are all effects of this decision. In my opinion, while this is extremely high stakes and puts women's rights across the country in jeopardy, I think cases like these are a reminder of the gravity of elections no matter the scale. Local, state, and federal laws impact all of us and will be of even more importance if decisions are to be made at a more local level. Whether you are pro-life or pro-choice, fighting for what you believe in, voting is the only way to enact change. Whichever way this goes, the war is certainly not over, and quite frankly, I don't know if it will ever be over, but if anything, a new battle has just begun.